How y'all doing? It's good to see you. They let me come over to Kentwood every now and then from Fulton Heights, and I love hanging out with y'all. You look fantastic today. Hope that you're having a good summer. We've got a lot of summer left. I keep telling myself we've got a lot of summer left. Please give me an A. We've got a lot of summer left, right? Please, please. And those of you watching online, hello, whether you're traveling, hanging out at home, Fulton Heights friends, family, I miss you, love you, see you guys next, next week. Um, we're talking about poison. Are you ready? Are you ready? We're in a new message series called Poison Control, the things in our lives that can poison our relationships with other people, poison our relationship with God. And when, I don't know about you, when I think of poison, I think of a classic movie called The Princess Bride. Has anyone seen, wow, well, let's just show that movie and call it a day. I, that hurt my feelings a little bit with the agreement. Classic movie, The Princess Bride. Action, adventure, romance, it's got everything. My family loves The Princess Bride. Two years ago for a trunk or treat event here at Kentwood, we dressed up as the entire cast of the film. There's a picture there of my family. My wife is Princess Buttercup. My oldest son is Anigo Montoya. My middle son is the Dread Pirate Roberts. I am uh, the giant, which also hurt my feelings just a little bit, that I was nominated as that. I'm okay. I'm okay. And then my youngest son, Cohen, we tried to convince him to dress up as the mastermind, Vinzini, the bald, kind of annoying guy, but he chose instead to be a rodent of unusual size. So if anyone needs a rat costume for a six-year-old, we've got you covered. Actually, my son's seventh birthday is today. Happy birthday, buddy. Yeah, this is fun. We're just hanging out, having a good time. Uh, there is a scene in The Princess Bride called The Battle of Wits. After the masked man is pursuing a group of kidnappers who have taken Princess Buttercup, he catches up to each of them and then has a battle. He fights with the sword with Inigo Montoya. He has a hand-to-hand battle with the giants and then makes his way to the uh, Vinzini, the mastermind. And a battle of wits commences where they agree to put poison into one of two wine goblets. And this guy's got to choose which one the poison is. It's a battle to the death. Uh, It's a pretty, uh, it's a funny scene, strangely enough. And what happens is after much dialogue, Vinzini makes his choice. He distracts the masked man, switches the goblets. And says, let's drink. I'll drink the one in front of me. You drink the one in front of you. And the one with poison will die. And he drinks the goblet. Starts cackling with laughter like he's tricked him. And immediately falls over dead. The princess says, how did you know which one he would choose? And what does the masked man say? What does Dread Pirate Robert say? They were both poisoned. I've spent the last several years building up an immunity to Iocane powder so I can drink it. And he drank it. He was fine. And it's a beautiful, like, romantic theatrical sentiment that we can build up tolerances to deadly 
poisons, all the while maintaining our charming British wits and accents. Uh, And that actually can be done with some mild poisons. I did far too much research this week on that. It's actually a practice called mithridatism. And although if that's a skill you're committed to developing, it must be noted that it only applies to certain metabolic poisons. And this is not a thing that Encounter Church recommends. Please don't say your pastor told me to try that. Uh... It should also be noted that during my research, I got very deep into a, a, a research article written about people that can develop these immunities to poison, and far too deep into the article, I realized that it was a fan research paper on the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, <laughs> and it was proved to be very unhelpful, uh, but I can give you the link if you want uh, For most of the things we talk about in this series, and for most of our lives, I think some of us feel like we can manage moderate portions of mild poison. Often we forget that we're dealing with deadly substances that are far worse than iocane powder. We think that we can build a tolerance to sin and an immunity to its effects. What we find is that these poisons of coveting, anger, shame... Pride, lust, they slowly dull our spiritual senses. That these things, these po- they poison our perception of, of who God has made us to be. They blind us to the work that he's called us to. And they limit our ability to be used by God. And all the while destroying our relationships with others. We might confuse numbness with tolerance. Maybe you think that your system can absorb a certain amount, but don't be fooled. Anger, shame, lust, pride, it's still a poison. And we're simply along the way numbed to its effects and dangers. But you might be numbed to your poison, while more likely you are numbed by the poison. Like overdosing on Novocaine, not realizing the damage that it's causing, even though you can't feel it along the way. But is that, like, is that the life that we want? Is that the best we can hope for, to build a tolerance, to be numb to sin? Is that your greatest desire, or is it something that we settle for? At great cost. I think and I believe that you want, that you hope for a thriving spiritual life. That you want your life to resonate with joy. You want to be deeply grounded in peace. You long to have a spiritual life that senses the presence of God. You want to speak with confidence as a man or a woman who is met with and been transformed by Jesus, you want to be someone who walks generously, filled with grace and wisdom. And when we're poisoned by envy, greed, lust, laziness, that life will continue to elude us. So that's why we're talking about poison control. Because I believe that much is at stake 
Today we're talking about coveting because we've all been there. We, when we can't get the thing that we don't have out of our mind, when our longing captures our desires in our imagination, what lies under our desire is often a trap door that can open at any minute and we can fall, destroying much of our lives. And in that trap door are some dark thoughts, some destructive patterns of greed and self-deception. But I do believe that there is an antidote to this poison. Uh, we're going to go back in the history books of Israel to find a strange story about a good king who came to a very bad end because of this very poison. And we're going to see that the poison of coveting has the power to pull down entire kingdoms. And it destroys lives. And no attempts to build a tolerance can protect us from the effects of the power of its toxicity. So if you would, if you open your Bibles on your phone uh, to Second Chronicles chapter 26, if you don't want to do that, we've got the scripture on the screen. This is a whole chapter dedicated to one person. Very long story. We're going to read sections of it. And then I'm also going to summarize parts of it. We're going to start at verse 1, Second Chronicles 26. Here we go, the people say, we are ready. Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, he's our guy today, Uzziah, who was 16 years old and made him king in place of his father, Amaziah. He was the one who rebuilt Elath. You're like, of course he did, I remember that. And restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his ancestors. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. Verse 4, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, the prophet, who instructed him in the fear of God. Zechariah was Uzziah's mentor. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. The next few verses lay out the successful moments of Uzziah's reign from an early age as king. I'm going to summarize some of these. He went to war against the Philistines, the historic enemies of Israel. He protected the people and their land. He broke down the walls of threatening enemies, and God helped him against those enemies. He rebuilt towns that had been destroyed in the past. His fame spread far and wide as far as the borders of Egypt because he had become very powerful. He protected the people in Jerusalem. He rebuilt towers. He fortified the city. He brought prosperity to the people with water cisterns, livestock, improved fields and vineyards. Verse 11 says that he was a great leader of the army. He was an inventor. He hired people and figured out systems to build aqueducts. He invented a catapult. What a rock star. And after listing all of this success... Verse 15 says this, his fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped until he became powerful. Verse 16, but after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord, his God. And he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Perhaps you've seen this in religious ceremonies 
an incense censer where someone waves this canister of incense. 17, Azariah the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him in. They confronted King Uzziah and said, it is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. This is the way that God has set it up. There are priests, there are kings, there is a healthy division and separation of power so that people don't step from one role to the next and become prideful. Leave this sanctuary, the priests say, for you have been unfaithful and you will not be honored by the Lord God. This is a pretty dramatic moment where Uzziah steps over a boundary that is not to be crossed, a boundary line that was clearly set by God. And it's a jumble of pride, greed, coveting, envy, jealousy, hatred, selfishness, arrogance. Like this tangled knot of self-destruction. And it cost a successful man his kingdom. It imploded everything that had been given to him in one moment. These things, coveting, pride, have been a venom for people since the beginning of time. And they have not lost their power today. I chose King Uzziah uh, specifically because his story is not the low-hanging fruit that we normally think about when we think about coveting or selfishness. It's not just like, man, I want that new phone or that new car is really, really cool. It goes deeper than that. Uzziah, he had done well for himself. He had a lot going for him, like many of you. He was successful. He was smart. He was a good leader. People looked up to him. He was well supported. And he was greatly helped. Verse 15 is this beautiful statement and an important reminder that no one is self-made. Many people had come along Uzziah to support him. To set him up. The Lord had helped him greatly. And it's something that we often choose to overlook or to not accept or not acknowledge. No one gets ahead without assistance. Without support and encouragement. Without the benefit of things that are actually out of our control. Things that others don't have. We have certain privileges that God has given us that we didn't earn. And he accomplished much. He did well with what he had been given. But a lie that Uzziah told himself and a lie that we often tell ourselves is that once we get to a certain point, we'll be able to find contentment there. But contentment is not found. It is created. And it only gets harder and harder and harder to build that contentment later Contentment will never be easier to build than in the place that you are today. And this is not a story of an easy example or a normal example of coveting, like a king wanting someone else's property or field or wife or house. Again, this is not like, hey, look at that cool shirt or, oh, man, like, I want that house. This is more about a person whose downfall was found 
in them longing for something that God did not give them. Not just a thing, but longing for a role that God had not given. Longing for a position that God had not given them. Longing to burst through a door that God had left locked. He covets the role of the priest. God had set up this authority boundary that guarded people from absolute power. But it was something that Uzziah had seen in other nations that he wanted. See, Uzziah had grown famous and he had built relationships with other kingdoms. And he envied his counterparts. The great kings of the east, the pharaohs of the east had been in the habit of exercising priestly as well as royal functions. And prided by his success, and as a desire to look like the kings of other nations, he determined to perform what he may have thought was his royal right. And he breaks through and tries to offer incense on this altar, and 80 priests say, no, that is over the line. That is not what God has given you. But Uzziah becomes angry and he pushes past their resistance and he moves forward with a censer in his hand to offer his incense. And while in anger, fighting the priest's restraints, white spots begin to break out on his forehead. And he begins to become leprous. Leprosy. Terrible, terrible disease. But the social repercussions in that time were almost worse than what people were experiencing physically. Most people with leprosy were sent outside of the city with this massive fear of contamination. They were isolated. And that proves to be Uzziah's end as well. So maybe he wants more authority or power than he already had. Maybe he thinks he can do it better than the priests. Maybe he wanted to be like the kings and the pharaohs of other nations and be both a priest and a king and perhaps a god himself. But Uzziah, over time, I believe the story shows us that he fixates and fixates on the ways that he was withheld what he thought was right. That God was withholding. And I believe he began to resent the priests. He began to resent the position and the place that God had him in. And the inevitable end to that is he began to resent God. God, why are you withholding this from me? Uzziah shows us that coveting is simply more, wanting more than what God has given us. Verse 21 tells us that this one successful king ends his days in isolation. Verse 21, King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous, and banned from the temple of the Lord. A guy who gets a whole chapter about how much he had been given, how good he had made it, the good things that he had done, it implodes in a moment. 
And we would be foolish to think that our own lives can't come to a similar end. Isolated from others and destroyed by our own longing. How about that? I'm surprised at how often I approach this idea of sin immaturely. Like a child afraid of a spanking. Hiding, afraid that I'm going to get in trouble with God. Afraid that I'm going to get caught by someone and be punished or embarrassed. When I think that scripture has a healthier view of sin as both a barrier to God's best for us and a bacteria that can grow and create pain and brokenness. Proverbs 14, verse 30, talks about it this way. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Covetousness, contempt, hold hands in the heart, and they hide there. Author Jen Wilkins calls it a small seed that grows and hides in the heart. But where does that start? What is that progression? What is that process? What is that sequence? Looks, what does it look like in our lives? How do we identify when we see it happening? Because I think it starts very small. And it's a seed that begins like this. This is how I've seen it play out in my life. Oh, that's nice. Whatever it is. That car, that house. That's nice. Next. That would be nice. That would be, that would be nice. That could, that could be mine. And here's, I think, the line that creates the most trouble. Not that could be mine. That should be mine. That should be mine. I work hard. From that should be mine to why isn't that? God, why isn't that mine? Why don't I deserve that? Why haven't you given that to me? Are you not good enough? Are you not powerful enough? Am I not deserving enough? Why are you holding out on me? And what starts as an unfulfilled desire can turn into an unrelenting feeling of deprivation. The feeling that you're starving for something. Maybe you've, maybe you've experienced it. Maybe it's been something small. Maybe it's been something larger. But that feeling like you are starving for something. And that grows into a disease of resentment. Has anybody felt a sense of resentment before? <laughs> Thank you. You guys are lying. No, I'm just kidding. Resentment is a really scary thing. Isn't it? Whether you have resentment to a friend, a family member, over history, years of unmet expectations, pain, hurt, a spouse, a partner. And we can hold resentment to God as well. And when you experience resentment, you can, I can justify almost anything. I can justify almost anything when I think that, that someone has been withholding or hurting me, perhaps on purpose. 
<laughs> and I think that God knew that that was going to be a problem for us. I think that's safe to say. Uh, in the Ten Commandments, at the very end, we're reminded that coveting is on the list of no-nos. If you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, it's number 10, comes in right at the end on the top 10 list. And I think that's how we really look at it. Like, it's just no-nos. Like, it's off limits. Like, it's not allowed. Like, peeing in a pool or a cell phone at the movie theater, you know, like, presumably because God doesn't want us to have fun or nice things. I don't think that that's true. The scriptures are very clear. The scriptures are very clear. God hates sin. The Bible is clear. And in Jesus, I believe that that is still true. However, I believe in Jesus that God is more interested in protecting you from sin than punishing you for sin. I think God is more aware of the destructive poison of sin than any of us ever could be. And he still hates it. But he's not on a mission to punish you for it. I believe he is on a mission to protect you from it. And he's shown us that. But Exodus 20, 17, the thou shall not, (laughs) thou shall not covet, you shall not covet. Hebrew scholars will remind us, talk about the Ten Commandments for just a second. I think this is really, really interesting. That the Hebrew word for the Ten Commandments is eseret debrov, which means simply ten words or ten sayings of God. When we say the word, word of God in Hebrew, the, the Jewish people say, Devar Elohim, the word of God. The Ten Commandments are more accurately translated as the ten words of God, the ten sayings of God. Exodus 34, 28, Moses wrote that the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, so that these words are to be kept. That word covenant means promise. The Ten Commandments are the Ten promises of God. This is God's promise. This is God's covenant to us. So yes, these are words to be kept. They're things to obey, but also they are promises of God to live from. So if we look at the Ten Commandments, the first commandment, thou shall have no other gods before me. I believe that there's a promise in there that you finally can know where you came from and whose you belong to, the Lord. Commandment two, you shall make no idols. It's a promise that you can be free from fake rituals, empty religion, and you can trust in a relationship with God. Commandment three, you shall not take the Lord of your God in vain is a promise that you can trust in the name that is above every other name. Commandment four, keep the Sabbath day holy is a promise that you can find rest. Commandment five, honor your father and mother. The promise is a family does not need to fall apart. It can have peace. Thou shall not murder. The promise there is you do not need to live in constant hate and anger and fear You can find love and forgiveness in the way of the Lord. Thou shall not commit adultery. The promise is that you do not have to live a life dominated by the guilt and pain and shame of sexual sin and brokenness. You can find peace. You shall not steal. Commandment eight is the promise that God will provide for you. Nine, do not bear false witness against a neighbor 
You do not have to pretend. You do not need to live in a lie. And we get to the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. Some scholars believe that this is actually the closing promise of all these other things. If you live out of these 10 words, these 10 commandments, that you won't have to covet. That it's a promise that if you follow these words of the Lord, God will be enough for you. That there will be an end to your striving. That there can be an end to your constant want for more. That you are not defined by your desires, but that you can find in God who provides, you can find enough. Man, that's a beautiful promise. So how do we live out of these promises? How do I stop myself from coveting? How do you stop yourself from wanting more and more and more? We, we stop ourselves. We prevent the growth of this fixation by cutting off the fuel of coveting with gratitude. We got to cut off the fuel. A good friend of mine was a firefighter in California, and they go through rigorous training to stop the spread of forest fires, which, as you know, are a pretty significant issue. And they're taught that you stop the spread of forest fires by simply cutting and removing the fuel for an advancing blaze. You remove the trees and the brush so that the fire has no more fuel to consume and with no fuel a fire dies. So they cut these big sections where they'll take out the trees, take out the brush and the shrubs and the fire once it gets to that point has nowhere else to go. And when we want to cut off the fuel of coveting in our lives, we must replace coveting and desire with gratitude. With gratitude. Uh, During a recent Passover celebration, uh, our neighbors in Fulton Heights at Temple Emmanuel invited uh, my family and I to join them for a Passover celebration Seder meal. And it was a really beautiful experience. Uh, The meal was instructed to the Hebrew people by God in Exodus chapter 12. And it it was a highlight for my family where we sang a song called Dayenu. D-A-Y-E-N-U. It's a Dayenu prayer. In Hebrew, it means it would have been enough. The word day in Hebrew means enough. Enu is the uh, personal plural suffix to us. Enough. To us, And this song has been sung for over a thousand years. Generation after generation of Hebrew Jewish families have sang this song together around the Passover table. And it simply explains in 15 verses all the things that God has done for the people. If God had brought us out of Egypt, the song says, if he had split the seas for us, it would have been enough for us. If he had led us through on dry land, if he had provided for our needs in the wilderness for 40 years, that would have been enough. He would have, if he would have fed us with manna every day, if he would have brought us into the land of Israel, if he would have not built a temple, even that would have been enough for us. He had given us the Torah. 
he had met our needs, Deenu, it would have been enough for us. The message is that God did more than enough to take care of us. And part of what Passover calls us to, calls the Jewish people to, is to remember their identity as ones who have been saved from slavery from God, as a group of people whose chains had been removed, as a group of people who have experienced God's provision and blessing and power. God is enough. He has proven himself faithful. Wouldn't you agree that you have experienced the goodness of God, that you could write your own Deenu song? with probably more than 15 verses. God, it would have been enough if you would have just helped me here. God, it would have been enough if you would have just shown yourself real in this. God, it it would have been enough had you only healed a family member or healed a relationship. God, it would have been enough if you'd only sent Jesus. God, it would have been enough if I would have only been able to experience the freedom and peace that's available to me because of the new life that's been offered to me. That would have been enough. You have been enough. So the antidote to the endless desire for more really is gratitude. It really is singing your own that would have been enough song or this is enough song. And you maybe wish, maybe you wish that there was another way, that there was another path to an antidote of that poison of coveting because it starts so small in the hidden parts of our heart. But gratitude does too. It starts in the hidden parts of our heart, in our imagination when we choose awareness for the things that God has done. That we acknowledge that God has given us so much. He's in fact given of himself. He's given his all in Jesus. Colossians chapter two reminds us of this. I'm gonna put it on the screen. And I want you to read it just for a moment. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. (laughs) And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. The word fullness there means abounding and complete. It's enough. That Christ is the fullness of God and you are brought to fullness in Christ. Jesus not only broke the power of sin and death, he broke the power of this poison. He understood who he was. He understood the empty promises of more. I love that during his time on earth, Jesus healed people with leprosy in a way that points back to the story of Uzziah that says, I have the thing that you're longing for and that you didn't even know and I can heal you from that. 
And he submitted himself. He surrendered himself. He volunteered to die on a cross to offer the cure to the thing that we need the most is that longing for more. So these 10 words, there is a promise. In Jesus, there is a promise that we don't need to be defined by our desires. We don't need to chase, chase, chase more and more and more. That in God, we have enough. That in Jesus, we are enough. And that he is the cure that we are looking for. Amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, would you open our eyes? Would we see the ways that you have provided for us beyond what we could even comprehend? You've been so good. You've been so good. You've been generous. You've been kind. You've been merciful. You've given us an opportunity to be joyful, to be full of peace. It's ours to take it. And God, when we choose to fixate on the things that we feel will complete us outside of what you've given us, would we look to you? Would we be reminded that you want to protect us from that stuff? And that in you is a life that is more than enough. God, the antidote to this is gratitude. And worship is our way of choosing gratitude and acknowledging your goodness. And so, God, as we worship you now, I pray that we would focus on the the specific areas where you've been good, the specific places that you've been generous. And I pray that we would worship with overflowing hearts of gratitude. And in our gratitude, we would meet you in a new way. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.